Reader Rolls once again, and this time the monthly interview is with Fredrik Malmberg, the the titan of all titans of Swedish RPG history. Welcome. Thank you, thank you. And by the way, in in every country except Sweden, they call me Fred, which is very strange because uh, that's just not at all what Fredrik <laughs> feels like. <laughs> but but uh, but everybody here right. in, the, in in the US they call me Fred. Fred, Fred, all right. Welcome, Fred, to Sweden Rolls. We're so honored and happy to be able to have a small talk with you. Thank you. So, uh, well, for our international listeners, maybe I think most of our Swedish listeners know all about you, but uh, for any listener abroad or in Sweden who may not be as well educated about Swedish RPG history, will you please give us a short presentation of yourself as a as a person, but also as a role player, role play designer, and uh, and stuff like that, starting from the from the very beginning. Sure. Uh, I, as you say, I was born in Sweden. I was born in rural Sweden. I wasn't born in rural Sweden, but I, I moved to rural Sweden. My father was a uh, practicing uh, doctor, so we were traveling around. And uh, uh, when I was about 12, 13, uh, I discovered war games. And this was in the early 1970s when war games was uh, the precursors of um, uh, of what became role-playing games. And for uh, the uninitiated, there were two types of war games. There were the tabletop paper war games mm-hmm. with hexagon-shaped encounters and big war armies. And then there was the uh, the miniature uh, war games, which uh, came all the way back from, uh, I guess it was H.G. Wells' Little Wars back from, mm. uh, which was commercializing the, the, the miniature war games. And Dungeons & Dragons, as you probably know, started when Gary Gygax and Arneson, they played uh, uh, the tabletop miniature war games and all of a sudden uh, they, one of them plopped down a wizard and said, well, you know, here's, here's what's going to happen now. <laughs> uh, and I went uh, about myself and was very interested in military history. I subscribed to some Swedish military history uh, magazines. There was a big um, uh, paper back then called Soldat technique that's soldier and techniques uh and this was around the time of um the uh israeli war in the arab peninsula so there there was a lot of it was the cold war era and the cold war era felt very much like now but different and sweden was very isolated we was there was no european union there was no internet there was nothing so people were still pen pals and you were writing physical letters sending them uh to each other and uh, you'd have to subscribe to I, I guess now you would call it the mailing list but then it was really literally you would join a club and you would send out uh, uh club newsletters once a month or once every two months or so mm. so at the time they wrote about war games in this in this magazine and you could buy a war game uh, by mail, which I did, and eight weeks later I received this little package about Napoleon at Waterloo, and that started off my gaming uh, obsession, which combined my interest of history with games, and then I uh, joined a club or two, uh, and we decided, all of us, I think in Sweden there must have been less than, there were probably about between one and two hundred people that were interested in this, and they would all invite each other. So 
one Easter, uh, I think it was in 1976, I went down to to Göteborg, to Gothenburg, and um, a group down there, a gaming group, had organized what is now known as Gothcon, but then was known as Convent. And mm. uh, and that's when I was exposed to Dungeons and Dragons for the first time, and that of course was a a watershed moment. So I actually uh, I have the pleasure of having played uh, the white box Dungeons and Dragons um, back then, and uh, and in rapid succession, of course, uh, I, I started exploring other games. The reason I'm probably being interviewed today is because I turned this into my my livelihood and my work very early on the first game i designed was a game called fight for tobruk it's awful uh <laughs> and uh and you you don't even want to try to play it i think it's unplayable i have never played it i, I did it when i was 12 years old or 13 years old um but it was my first venture into publishing my own games and it was in the english language which was very unusual in Sweden in the mid 1970s. So, oh, yeah. uh, when I did that, I reached out to predominantly the American game publishers. So, of course, that was um, in those days. It was Chaosium and Jagged Panther and uh, TSR, Game Designers Workshop, all these game companies in the U.S. And they thought it was very exotic to uh, be writing letters to somebody in Sweden. They probably thought I was much older than I was, and they all asked me, can you import our games and sell them in Sweden? So I mm. did. I started a very small uh, mail-order business in my in my room without my parents either knowing about it. So uh, they found <laughs> out because, of course, my, my room got crowded with uh, – and, and I was receiving – bundles of mail at the at the local little post office but uh, uh this led me uh, when i had a gap year after uh, i actually dropped out of university i started economics in Uppsala, and i realized that this is not for me i don't want to do this instead i took a gap year and i went to the united states i was 17 or uh, i turned 18 i was very young which is one of the reasons uh, i i did not fit into the university at the time i think and I, I'm kind of blessing that now, but it, it's, it led me into um, going to the United States, working as an intern, starting in the warehouse for a number of game companies. Um, and I ended up in the last six months of my year there, I ended up at Chaosium and uh, as a hangaround. Mm-hmm. In Chaosium, as you know, um, big big role-playing. They had um, huge success at the time with RuneQuest. I would say that they were number two at the time after Dungeons & Dragons, mm, yeah. which, of course, was in a different league uh, of its own. But I'm now in 1979-1980, uh, and I worked for a game distributor there. Um, they were called uh, Armageddon, and they became known as Chessex, and that was uh, uh, the largest game distributor before they were uh, bought up by Alliance, I think it is today. Uh, and I worked for them. And on the evenings, I would head up because I rented a room um, in the house of Steve and Louise Perrin. And Steve Perrin designed RuneQuest and worked for Chaosium. So it was uh, very close to Berkeley where I worked. And then after work, I would head up to the Chaosium house which Greg Stafford uh, had conveniently organized into a multi-level, great 
a creative spot where um, at the time Sandy Peterson was developing Call of Cthulhu. They were working on Stormbringer, uh, Magic World. The basic role-playing game system had just been invented. And, and those are very formative uh, months for me when, first of all, I really enjoyed the percentile system as opposed to the level-based system. Uh, I thought that was a, a big revelation at the time. Mm, mm. Um, also, of course, I made good friends with with a lot of people there. Uh, and yeah, these I, are huge names, these guys. These are huge names, of course. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 uh, uh, I decided as I was heading home that uh, role-playing games are really here to stay, and uh, and is going to be much wider than the war games. And um, uh, I made a deal with Greg that uh, uh, I should translate Magic World and into Swedish language, and uh, and make that. Uh, into our first Swedish language uh, role-playing game, and that mm. became Drakkar Demoner and Dragons and Demons, and uh, uh, we had to expand on the Magic World because Magic World was just basically a, a, a very generic rule set, um, and but it was it was clean, it was simple, so we sat down, we translated that, we filled in where we could, we made some more illustrations, and the uh, blue box, or the uh, Drucker and the Mourner blue box, came out in 1982. We printed 5,000 um, copies, which was a, a huge amount at the time. Um, mm. And that was the uh, start of the Swedish publishing, which we had under the, the label of Aventurspel. And that was the sister company because when I came back from the States, we also we had started the, the little import business that I had, the mail order business, mm. uh, had expanded and we had um, a little bit of import uh, and, and started to sell to other shops as well. Uh, and we had a little shop in the uh, suburb of, of Stockholm called Jotargan and uh, it was in a basement there and we sold games I would say a semi, a semi hobby basis. But when I returned from the, from the States, I realized that, okay, if we are going to do this, we have to really uh, focus and, and, uh, and try to approach this uh, as a professional publishing and distribution mm. adventure. So uh, that's a little bit of, of my background and how I ended up in the industry. Yes, because many of, much of what happened after that is something that we'll talk about later with later questions. Mm -hmm. But I think this, this story really illustrates uh, the reason why, why you are the main engine behind uh, Swedish Roleplay Wonder, because you were the one who, who really saw the possibility. You were the one who really saw, saw you could do business with RPGs. You could, you could start something in Sweden. I mean, um, I would definitely say that, that you are the most important person for role-playing games being so big in Sweden. And we, in fact, now are the biggest RPG nation per capita in the world. And, and uh, we all owe a huge debt to you due to this because, because you were the one who really kick-started everything, who really got, got things going. Well, of course, fact, with the help of others. You. Of That's, course, with the help yes. of others. But there, there was but a lot of, if, lot of if people. If there's one who is really essential 
that it couldn't have worked without. That I mean, because you were the one with the U.S. contacts, you were the one who sat there with Greg Stafford and, and those guys, and you were the one who who got the uh, the BRP uh, contract to 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 do Swedish games, right? Well, there was there was of course a big debate at the time, and uh, I uh, thank you very much for the big uh, compliment, and I appreciate it. But uh, but it, of course. This is going to be the uh, debate for years, and it's very interesting because, of course, it created. Today we can look back and see that role-playing games and fantasy and uh, science fiction in general are part of our mainstream pop culture or mass culture. But that was not the case in 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 the early 1980s, where uh, exactly. um, it was almost like we lived in. Uh, you can go and and watch the HBO series Chernobyl, and you'll get a feeling for how how it felt even in Sweden, we felt like we were mm. in Chernobyl, you know? Mm. Um, so to bring in these fantastic worlds and, and, and I thought was, it, it was a huge revelation for myself. And I think it was part of a, uh, finding a family for, for what we now, we would, now we, we didn't even have the term nerds, but of course I was a nerd and I had my special interest and I like, I mean, who else in the sub or in the rural Sweden would be interested in the Napoleonic Wars? And, uh, and when mm. you found people that had the same interests and they were, you know, maybe 500 miles away and you'd start being their pen pal, it, we really had to nourish these interests and these hobbies. So mm. when, uh, and and I was very entrepreneurial. I'm still very entrepreneurial. And as a kid, it was very natural for me to okay, uh, how can I turn this into a business? That was that's always I I have always been like that. So uh, and this coincided. I think we had luck as well because right after the there was the boom of the uh, video game consoles. Like uh, mm. if you may remember mm. the Atari 2600, the Intellivision, mm. the ColecoVision. Uh, and they died in 1982-83. And our games were actually the only thing if you were not a sports jock or, you know, uh, some, so if you were in a middle grader, uh, like a Stranger Things kid in mm. Sweden in 1984-85-86, uh, there was actually nothing else to do uh, if you were on the nerdy side. There yeah. was nothing much to do. So that became... And not much of entertainment either, because we didn't have cable TV by then. No, uh, no we there was only two, two state channels. channels. Yeah. That's correct. Which, which had maybe half an hour of uh, children or youth culture airing per day. So it was That's really, right. Yeah, but with the time so, it was really perfect. And then, of course, the, uh, uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, was uh, quite a big success also a decade or so earlier, and... And it, uh, it, the timing was really right. Yes, the timing was right. It was, but, but that's probably true worldwide. Uh, Sweden was a little behind, but we were ahead of the curve because, of course, France, Germany, Italy. I, when I went to these conventions to mm. buy uh, licenses and to buy for our retail stores and for the distribution operation, I would meet other importers, and and it, it became very clear to me already in 1984, 85 that Sweden was as big of a market for the American publishers as, let's say, Italy uh, mm. and Germany. And, mm. and that, of course, was very odd because uh, and they could not understand why. But, of course, we mm. could see because we are growing a very 
large hobby with with um, uh, native speaking kids who embrace role playing games. And after two or three years, Swedish people already then were very knowledgeable in English and they could switch mm. over and start playing imported games, which of course also appealed a little bit to the elitist uh, vein of any hobby that, you know, it became a little mm. cooler to play the more advanced games, which, um, which led to uh, very great connections. And, and some of my dearest, greatest friends uh, I made in those days with uh, Pete Fenlon over at Iron Crown. And, and we did the uh, Lord of the Rings game, Middle Earth role playing. Mm. Uh, Jordan Weissman, who who had FASA, all of us were about the same age, and we were all young. We were 24, 25, and we were all enjoying uh, working with our what we really loved to do. And we we went on business trips together, and we went on vacations together. So these mm. these relationships were very very deep. Um, and, uh, and they are still today. So I'm very grateful for having been exposed to it so early, of course. And, and now it's amazing to see how it's, it seems like we're getting a second wave. It's, it's the oh, for nostalgia sure, yeah. wave, of course, mm-hmm. but also I see younger kids and I see a totally different crowd. We, it's much more diverse. It's much more mm-hmm. females coming in. It's, it's crossing into cosplay, mm-hmm. uh, LARPing. It's, it's a broader, uh, appreciation of anything um nerd culture absolutely absolutely and that's worldwide as well that's not just in sweden that's worldwide but also in sweden you definitely can feel this this second wave of uh, of uh, yeah nerd culture and fandom in general but also in role-playing games of course um so you stopped your story about when you when you found the target games and when you really got got it going um and then, uh, of course, by the, the second and, and then third edition of, of Draka and the Moner, and also the licensed game you mentioned, you made a Swedish translation of Merp and also the Western Games uh, Star Wars game, um, along with some inventions of your own, like Mutant and... Uh, well, Shock was... That was a chill remake. Yes. Yeah. Uh, was. Shock was a chill... chill translation but we oh it was more of a remake we we completely re-illustrated the works we mm. we added new chapters <laughs> we tried to bring in some um different cover artists and of course the title itself came from a very popular horror comic book series in sweden mm. shock yeah. which was probably early 70s when when we were all growing up and reading so that was a better that was a better title for us uh, at the time but that's mm. correct. And, and, and then we, of course, translated uh, a number of game books, choose your own adventure style books. Like we, we uh, early on brought out the Lone Wolf series yeah, yeah. Uh, and a number of books uh, in, in that uh, vein. And also we started the first paperback um, uh, publishing program of sci-fi and fantasy novels. So mm. we published... Mm. Howard Moorcock, Liber, uh, you name them. We, I think we yeah. published almost 60 or and 60 this was books before, like Yeah, this was before the, the book publishers in Sweden had realized there was a, quite a big audience for science fiction and fantasy books. So, so you were the first ones to translate uh, Terry Pratchett and, uh, and also uh, Robert E. Howard as well, right? That's correct. That's yeah. correct. And, and of course, we were... 
we were a bit uh, unorthodox in the in the sense that we wanted these books to be in paperback and cheap so that people could actually mm. afford them because our customers were young and the book industry is very conservative in Sweden mm, yeah. it, it, we maybe had 250 300 bookstores um, a nice book would be hardbound and cost hundreds of kroner mm. and i think there was a huge of course lord of the rings had been a, a major seller but mm. there was a uh, there was a huge rift between the real the real um, super consumer of sci-fi fantasy and the literate uh, industry that mm. just basically did not realize that this is a genre that uh, is here to stay. And it sh they, they saw Lord of the Rings as a fable and uh, very, very academic, whereas uh, anything Pratchett or Howard or Moorcock would just be trash literature. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was relegated to, yeah, you can sell that in the newsstands or yeah, kiosks. Exactly. Because Tolkien is an Oxford professor and Correct. his other guys weren't, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, is there any game of these uh, from this period that you are especially proud of, the Target Games era? That's a good question. I thought about it, um, and things change. But one game that's always been very close to me was Mutant, Mutant, which was not a licensed game. It was developed mm. and designed in Sweden, and, and mm. I was actually the, the project manager for it myself and uh, the editor for it. So I was very involved um, in everything from the, the design to the playtest to, to the setting. And I think that has left me with... Um, a, a, a warm place in my heart. I think mm. mutant is also very, in its in its basic form, it's it's kind of a childish. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic Sweden in the future mm. when mm. you have these anthropomorphic. You have basically talking animals. It's a it's a big fantasy. It's a big fable, and it's a very dystopian world, really. But it's it's not so dark because you have talking animals and robots yes, and I that mean, makes it fun walking bears that talk and tell talk with telephones or, or go around with a uh, with a rifle on their back while having their kids in a uh, grocery store uh, like it's cabbage. fun and it, and, it's, and, it's, and remember so, this is yeah. 15 years before fallout uh, mm. and it's probably 10 years before wasteland so it was very it was very fresh very innovative and i'm very, yeah. super happy that it it has uh, been Basically, it has been a, become a perennial in Sweden. After we uh, that went out of print, and it went into many iterations, in, you know, the Cyber Mutant, the Mutant Chronicles, or whatever. But then, um, uh, Fredrik Wester and his um, at the at the time Jan Ring, and they brought it back as as Mutant mm. Undergångens yes. Arftagar, and that yeah. was during the <laughs> almost you can call it dark ages of role playing. Exactly. Games. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they brought it back, and it was it was mm. beautiful. And then uh, right now, of course, what what the Free League is doing with Mutant Year Zero, Zero is yeah. is nothing but outstanding. It's yeah. fantastic. It's been a continuous story almost from from '84 when it came, and and then up till today. Uh, yeah, with, with something happening, you know, with that uh, IP. <laughs> and so we talked a bit about you uh, living in uh, the U.S. Now you live in L.A. since uh, quite a few years back. Uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, what you've been doing? 
during this past uh, decades, basically, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I moved. It's almost uh, it's 15 years ago. I, I came to Los Angeles, uh, which was f- for work. Uh, I didn't really have um, any idea of of why I would want to be in Los Angeles and it's a crazy town, <laughs> but I've learned to really love Los Angeles. I love, I love it. And I live in Hollywood. I've got like two blocks away. We, we have sound stages and studios and production services companies. And mm. it's just a very creative, uh, bustling environment. I, I have the fortune to meet with, you know, top writers, top directors, top uh, mm. uh, creative mm. people. And it's mm. giving me energy every day. And I'm, I'm smiling every day as I go to work, uh, not only because of that, but also because the weather is so darn good here. It's sunshine <laughs> every day. Yeah. So, so that makes it easier. But um, what brought me here was that in the, in the end of the 90s, we started to become so successful internationally with a lot of our IPs, interna- intellectual properties, the games mm. Mm. Uh, like Mutant Chronicles and Cult. And, and, uh, and I, at the time, I was heading up uh, the video game um, launch for Target Games. And that was uh, I was putting together six video games, the first slate. Uh, and uh, one of the first games that we we really tried to crack was a a port of a board game called Europa Universalis. So mm, that yeah. of course became a massive hit when we brought it out uh, as Paradox. Mm. And um, uh, we decided the board basically said, okay, we want to focus on these video games. I want to focus on the on the IP. And uh, circumstances had it that we uh, ended up buying the estate of Robert E. Howard. So we ended up owning all the literary creations, including Conan the Barbarian. Mm. And it was and it was up to me then to commercialize them. And um, the, the, at this time, this was in 2002, um, we started we started negotiations in 2001. And it's important to remember that there was absolutely no licensed articles whatsoever for Conan. Mm. It was a, a dead brand. It was an old movie from 1982. The mm. comics were out of print, uh, and there was basically it was it was starting all over. But I really loved the character and especially the world um, mm. that that Howard had created. And of course, it wasn't just that character. But we started with Conan, and the first uh, strategy was okay. We have to gamify. We have to show that it's more than the character. People have a misconception of this character. You have to ask yourself, what's a Conan? And most people will say, oh, that's our governator. Uh, so they really didn't know anything about the literary uh, background of the character. So mm. I, I thought it would be faster and quicker to educate people, but it wasn't. It, it took <laughs> a long time and it's paying off now. I would say it took 10 years because the first thing we really wanted to do was an MMO. At the time, uh, mm-hmm. World of Warcraft wasn't out yet, but... Um, uh, there was some other uh, EverQuest was out, so we knew okay if we if we can do a game like that, the world that Howard has created for Conan is amazing, fantastic. We will really uh, be able to to uh, carve out niche, and uh, and also comic books. Of course, it has a long legacy in comic books. So I had to move to the states because this is where all these businesses are really located. Because of mm. course, even back then, a video game was a lot of money to create and you had to 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 be close to Dark Horse comics or Marvel or, or DC comics to even have a creative process uh, uh, work with them. Mm. So I packed up a bag 
uh, we decided, the board decided, okay, you, you should go set up the U.S. office. And uh, this was like in October, and three weeks later, I arrived uh, at LAX with with a suitcase. Uh, and here we are. And and I thought it would be like a two three year stint. Yeah. So that that's pretty much um, the reason I moved here and and stayed because of course once you um, find as an entrepreneur you find a place where the market's const- constantly evolving and yeah. and growing. That's uh, you can never see. leave. Yeah. You can never leave because you always have to to fix the next thing or I can do that or this is what. So you're kind of stuck until I guess forever. Yeah, yeah, I see. I see. And then, well, there are worse places to be stuck than in LA. <laughs> Correct. Yes. <laughs> so um, you've been along for for quite a while, and can you tell us a bit about how you think the RPGs have changed over the years? Do you see some kind of de- development that is that was surprising, or was it a logical uh, development for RPGs from from the early Dungeons and Dragons and Rock and the Money games to, to where we are now? Uh, it's tough. It, it's it's tough because, of course, with any art, and let's let's call role playing game construction. It's it's an art. Uh, it's a creative art for sure. And uh, any creative art that's new, uh, an art form that's new, needs to improve and and push. And you have to try new things and push the boundaries to to. Otherwise, the art form will die. Yeah. I think um, you'll fail with some, and some will succeed. That's correct. So I think I think of course, if you compare, the audience is much more. I think we're talking fourth, fifth generation now. The audience is much more sophisticated. They've seen everything. It's hard to be very innovative, but mm. I think there were some interesting innovations when everybody thought that RPGs were dying. I think that's when they were reinvented. Early mm. early two thousands. I I think. You go back and you see how it became um, user-created material, became mm. much more uh, prevalent. And also, I think, a major – and that that led to uh, the big community. Social media has, has allowed people to share ideas and, uh, mm. uh, and really rejuvenate the whole creative process of tabletop RPGs. Okay, so we'll look uh, we'll look back quite a lot. Uh, could you, if we try and gaze into the future a bit, could you tell us a bit about any future projects you're involved in? Uh, uh, I'm sure you have a lot of uh, uh, secrets that you aren't allowed to to reveal, but do you have something that's not so secretive that you could share with us? Of course, we we uh, it's constantly trying to push all the characters and and IP that that I own and work with into new media and, and stay relevant. Uh, Conan, of course, and the world of, of uh, Conan and his, uh, his characters associated with him are extremely popular and successful now in video game format. Mm. So we are pushing that and trying to introduce um, the concept of the, um, let's call it the genetic memory, which Howard describes mm. a lot in his stories where you know, Moorcock picked up on this with his Eternal Champions and, and the idea that um, these brave human warriors, they're mortal. Conan is a mortal man. He may not be aware of his cosmic importance, but uh, yeah. as as the millennia pass and, uh, and humankind is uh, ever threatened by the aliens, 
Um, there is this eternal struggle between the great old ones who really have uh, tired of the human experiment. And uh, that's, of course, um, something we have to stop. So I think that's an interesting project where we're working on really trying to find uh, a unifying, and I'm not looking at this as uh, Conan, Solomon, Kane, Dark Agnes uh, as an Avengers of, mm. of Howard, but uh, instead going very deep into Howard's material and, and reading uh, characters like James Addison open up big opportunities for us and a lot of great future projects. And I can't say more than that, but it's, of course, we're working very closely with Marvel Comics now. Uh, they have they have masterful world builders that that we work with and uh, we're blessed to work with some of the best writers who really understand the material as well and that we don't have to explain what's a Conan they yeah, come exactly. and they actually know yeah. they know more than we do mm. sometimes so that's great mm. uh, Jason Aaron Jerry Duggan these writers are amazing and of course the artists they're bringing it, they're fantastic so we're working mm. with them to expand the the um, from away from not just Conan, but into the other characters uh, mm. that Howard has created. And he created, he wrote 800 stories and short, short stories and poems. So, so massive production there. Mm. Uh, I'm working on trying to, like we talked about the, the experience, the live experience and, uh, and going to galaxy's edge and being in the Lucas universe, in the star Wars universe. Mm. Uh, it's bigger than Lucas now. So that would be amazing to find a way in with, um, either, you know, uh, augmented reality software or even land-based entertainment and really build these amazing, uh, worlds so that people can, can access them without having to read the book or, or watch a movie. Movie uh, and television series is something that I've been working on pretty intensely for the last three, four years. And I think we're close to um, where we want to be with the package. We don't want to give up control. And that's the that's the, the factor that that means it takes so long to do these things. Yeah, so yeah. people have been wanting, can't you just, anybody can do uh, Conan Unforgiven or with Arnold and anybody can do, uh, you know, a TV series. That shouldn't be mm. too hard with Game of Thrones being such a big uh, success. But mm. the, the difficulty is not doing the deal. The difficulty is usually in doing the right deal with the right creative mm. and, and not yeah. getting stuck forever in, in development hell. And that's why, mm. you know, in Hollywood, 15 years go by very quickly. The average... And the average development time for a movie in this town is 10 years. And the oh. average time for a TV series is seven years. So, mm. you know, you, you get to a point where you realize that life is short. But yeah. the good thing is in Hollywood also you can work until you're 95 or whatever. Yeah. Look at Stan Lee. He had, a, he had an amazing life. Yeah. Uh, so what else, what else are we doing? We're working on that. That's exciting. Um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, of course the book side and the tabletop side is important too. We, we have, um, some exciting new, we haven't written a, a new Conan book in 20 years. So it's time now. And we have a few that we're, uh, working on with, mm. um, authors like Mike Stackpole and Scott Oden, very prominent writers and authors. Um, yeah, so that's that's a little bit of, of what I'm doing right now. And of course, we're also uh, working on the other IP, 
uh, cult and uh, mutant chronicles especially mutant year zero and mutant chronicles are, mm. are focused for us on the video game side so yeah. um so that's exciting too yeah very exciting to hear about all this uh, all this creative work being uh, being uh, handled by such an uh, expert hand as your your own uh, Thank you. Hope for them all to to become huge successes, and and we'll we'll keep in touch with you to see how how they're developing as well. Of course, that'd uh, be great. Yeah, and you, you talked about a bit about um, I mean, having an IP or a story or a character in in different kinds of media, and of course, what we're doing is an actual play podcast, and and that's a uh, well, it's been around for a few years, but it's not, and it's not, it's, it's still quite a new phenomenon. Um, what do you think of the phenomenon of AP podcasting and, and live streaming on Twitch and, and stuff like that? Uh, well, I, I mean, obviously, it's great, right? It's uh, it, it's interesting, and it's funny because the podcast started when the iPod came out, and then it kind of went away a little bit and now it seems it feels like it's coming back with a vengeance it's it's oh, for it's sure very, yeah. yeah and and it's everything from music of course to ap to to criminal uh, stories by the way i the uh, eight i think it was an eight part the cult um not cult the uh, the voices of the dead the dadas roster so that was a huge success on on uh, a something that was sort of related to the RPG community, I guess, in Sweden and, and had millions of listeners. So so uh, the format is, of course, challenging because it means you have to find your audience. That's hard because the competition is massive. Mm, but if you yeah. find your audience and you have a clear voice, and you mentioned Twitch, Twitch is in a way easier and harder, right? Because mm. you're, you're in the video game space, but uh, uh, you have to also be good on screen that's uh yeah. you don't have the chance to edit as well as you do exactly. uh, maybe in a podcast yeah, yeah. Uh, you need more, uh, more equipment and stuff like that but it's yeah yeah and, and it's it's becoming a part of the daily media uh avalanche i guess yeah, and and exactly. that's the that's yeah. the challenge is that we we're we're everything is glutted now it's yeah. too much of everything so yeah, you have to yeah. find you have to find what really suits you and tailor that to get your weekly, daily, monthly um, fix. And I think Absolutely. I think that's where podcasts like yours is good, Critical Role. We have Critical Role here. We have so many mm. that are really tailored to a specific audience. And uh, and that, I think, is very good because it, it, it enables us to to put together the bouquet of what we want to listen to. Uh, I have to – my ride to the office is very short, but – a lot of my uh, colleagues here, they have really started listening to Audible or audiobooks and mm. podcasts as they're driving to work. It takes a few times to, or a few books to kind of get into that. But then a, a, commu- a daily commute, which can be up to an hour or two here, um, mm. becomes really productive and creative. So, uh, and I don't see commutes becoming less long in the future in the so, near future yeah. at least. So, mm-hmm. so I'm all for it and I think it's great. And, uh, and what you guys are doing and, and other podcasts out of Sweden is really great because, uh, I mean, the web has no boundaries, right? Which is, uh, exactly, yeah. which is, which is great. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, we have had a long chat and it has been extremely interesting to hear to hear all your stories. But I have I want to finish off with some short questions. And these are basically the same for every every person I interview on our podcast here. And um, yeah, so just some 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 short uh, some short uh, what do you call them? Um, flash flash questions in the end. Okay, cool. So, uh, what is your favorite RPG, not created by yourself or any of the companies you've had? Um, Call of Cthulhu. Call of Cthulhu, yeah. Great game. Uh, Do you have a preference in genre? Fantasy, sci-fi, horror, steampunk, uh, like whatever. Horror. Horror. Yeah. Yeah. Music while role-playing, yes or no? No. Snacks during sessions, yes or no? Yes. Alcohol during sessions, yes or no? Hell yes. <laughs> GM <laughs> or PC? PC. <laughs> PC. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. A bit, a bit, a bit uh, other answers than I've gotten from from uh, many of my other the other people <laughs> I've uh, I've interviewed. Very interesting. Oh, they so they want yeah. music, no alcohol, and they want to be GM. <laughs> well, alcohol is about fifty fifty, uh, uh, but music. Most have said yes, and almost everyone has said. Uh, well, I can't choose, but I mean, like, gun to my head, I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd guess I'd rather be a GM than a, than, than a PC. Oh, really? Yes. No, it's it's too much work. It's much better to just sit back and enjoy and try to, <laughs> to mindfuck the GM. <laughs> but, but if you have a great GM, it's it can be an amazing... I guess it's really the music, yes or no, that's really a GM question. Because to some GMs, that can be very, very uh, uh, important. But for me as a PC, that's not up to me to choose. Yeah, and also there's the snacks. I mean, for some, when I, when I interviewed Francesco Nepitello, his his idea of a snack was a sandwich, and uh, others were like, "Yeah, I gotta have chips," and and, uh, and you know, and uh, and many have said no to alcohol, but Elno De, De Lorenzo, who is a one of the the stars in um, Androids and Aliens, one of the Glass Cannon podcast networks, uh, big podcasts, they play uh, Starfinder. And uh, and she was like, hell yeah, I gotta help my alcohol when I. When of I course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you and, and it depends on what. Okay, you can sit there and 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 tank, you know, scotch a whole evening, but you can have a sip of, of red wine and a good yeah. red wine, and you could enjoy that. And uh, yeah. and I think it 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 stimulates the the creativity. Of course, here yeah. you're in Sweden, so you can't. But here, of course, the big uh, thing is is now. Um, Everybody's smoking weed because it's legal. Uh, uh, and and of course, when this one of the of the first memories I have from Chaosium, you go into that second. They were up in Berkeley, which was referenced as berserkly oh, yeah. back in the day. Mm. And and the play tested. We were all like 17, 18. Mm. And that's where I tried my first bong. And I, I didn't even smoke cigarettes in Sweden. And I, <laughs> I, I can't say that I'm a weed smoker because I can't even smoke cigarettes. And yeah. it just stung my throat so much. But... All the guys in there, the, the clouds were heavy during the playtest yeah. sessions. I can tell you when we were playing Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, yeah. I could imagine. I could imagine in the seventies as well. So, you know. Yes, I mean this is a place where the office was in a little house, and mm. uh, and of course it had a lawn, and nobody wanted to mow the lawn. So Greg got a goat, so the goat would eat <laughs> up the grass, and so there was a, a resident goat outside the chaos. Oh. Uh, house and so uh, now yeah, I those know, are the days. Right in the teaser text for this uh, interview, 
if you want to find out why Greg Stafford had a goat on his lawn in the 70s, listen to this interview. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah. God bless his soul. So anyway, it was a pleasure, uh, Andreas, and uh, yeah, so uh, I hope we stay stay very close and, uh, and can talk again soon. I hope so too. Thank you very much. And thank you, listeners, dear listeners, for listening to this interview. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, to get the opportunity to win some awesome giveaways. If you want to support our podcast and help us create more and more content, please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Sweden Goodbye. And farewell. <laughs>